morning. So good to see you guys in a new year. I want to welcome you uh, here and online. Um, man, that song was so encouraging for me. Um, I can tell you, and I, I would hope that you could say the same, that he has always been good, and he has always been faithful. And I can think of all of the ways that I have fallen short and uh, let him down and um, not been who I needed to be. And yet, he comes after me again and again and again and again. And uh, what an encouragement. It's great for us to be together, to sing that kind of truth together. And I wanted to ask you um, to start off the morning, who in here needs a fresh start? Is there anybody in here at all? Yeah, who, for all kinds of reasons, right? I, I want you to read with me some sweet, sweet words. I know that I have shared it a hundred times from uh, this pulpit, but um, I want us to read this as we get into this text together today, just as a reminder that our God is a God of fresh starts. He does it again and again and again. Read this with me out of Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind. Read it with me. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You and I have an opportunity for a fresh start every day. Every day because of the goodness and the grace of God. So, it's his grace that we get to be together here today, that we get to sing his praises and pray to him and now get into his word. I wonder if uh, with that idea of a fresh start, how many of you have already made New Year's resolutions? I know there's lots of opinions about whether those are good or bad, right or wrong or whatever, but I want to offer you the idea of a resolution that may be different than any other you've ever made, because this isn't really about uh, starting something or stopping something or getting over something or whatever else. Uh, this is about your posture as it relates to life. And as this series is going to do over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about making a resolve to be ready. Just deciding today at the beginning of a new year, and you know, this year isn't any more or less important than last year and it's not any more or less important than the year after that it's just a year it's just a day but what if you and I decided we're going to resolve to be ready and ready for what ready for anything and everything that God might want to do in you and through you today and then here's what you get to do. You get to do the same thing tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. You and I can live in relationship with God, empowered by his Holy Spirit, ready for anything that he has for us. So that's my encouragement, my offer to you today. 
And this passage, Luke 21, that we're going to uh, begin looking at is all about readiness. It's all about how we can be ready. Now, just as a little bit of a review, we're in the final week of Jesus' life. I know we've been in the Gospel of Luke forever, but um, here we are. We have come to the Passion Week. His disciples, um, I think, are anticipating something very different than what Jesus is trying to prepare them for. They think that by the end of this week, Jesus is going to be king on the throne and they're going to be his guys. And they're going to rule the world together. Now we know that's not what happened. But they don't. And so we get to walk with them through this week and we get to see Jesus guide them, help them navigate what is one of the most defining moments of their life. Here is the Passion Week just at a glance. Uh, On Sunday, there was the triumphal entry. We already looked at that. And then on Monday, you had the cleansing of the temple. And by the way, this is very, very simplified. I know there's a whole lot more in the text than this, but this just gives us a good direction here. Tuesday, we have teaching in the temple. And what we're going to look at today, a thing called the Olivet Discourse. Um, Wednesday, there was likely more teaching in the temple. We're just not told a whole lot about what happens there. Judas perhaps sets up his betrayal on Wednesday. Thursday, we have the Last Supper. And then we have uh, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and arrested. Friday, we have trials, crucifixion, and burial. And, And it's over until Sunday. And then we have resurrection. So we are on Tuesday. Just want to help you get your bearings of where we are in this week. Jesus just has a few days before his crucifixion. So it's just so helpful to keep in mind. That's what Jesus is thinking about. He knows that's coming. And again, his disciples are in a completely different place. They were there at the triumphal entry. And they were pretty excited about that, I think. And then they saw their man Jesus go in and cleanse the temple. And they're like, yep, right on target. This is going exactly like we had hoped and thought. And then they hear him teaching uh, in these other couple of days in the temple and refuting all of the schemes of the religious leaders. And crowds are gathering around them. And once, yeah, it's like, yes, it's happening. I can't believe it. We are going to rule the world. They're excited about their plan and seem to be very uncertain about Jesus' plan. Um, This day, Tuesday, is divided up into two big segments. We looked at chapter 20 where Jesus was teaching in the temple, refuting uh, the leaders, correcting them and gathering crowds. And then in Luke 21, we shift into what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Now, the Mount of Olives, that's where this comes from, is not mentioned in the book of Luke, but it is mentioned in Matthew and Mark. And just as kind of a Bible study message thing, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. They all speak of similar things in a similar order, 
And so we often read those three together, even though they come from three different perspectives. John's gospel is not contradictory to those three. It's just written from a different perspective. He doesn't necessarily do things in the same chronological order. He includes some things and omits some things that the other three don't. So there are some differences here, but in Matthew and Mark, we're told that Jesus and his disciples, after the teaching that he did on Tuesday, are leaving the temple. Luke doesn't mention that, but we're going to assume that that is what's happening as we get to the text in Luke 21. We're going to pick up in verse 5, and we're told very briefly in Luke's Summary of all of these things is fairly brief, but he says some were speaking, some of the disciples were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So the disciples have been in the temple listening to Jesus teach. They're leaving, as we're told in uh, Matthew and Mark, they would go over to the Mount of Olives to rest overnight. And then they would come back for Jesus to teach the next day. So as they're leaving, the disciples are captivated by the temple and the temple mount. And this is no small thing, but you can kind of be thinking like these are country boys in big city. I grew up in a smaller town in Oklahoma and it would be like plopping me in the middle of New York. And my eyes would be big as saucers as I look around at these just monoliths of architecture. That's what's happening here. They're looking around and they're seeing the grandeur of the temple and the temple mount. And they are in awe. This would have been considered one of the world's wonders. I don't know. It, it may, they might not have called it one of the seven wonders of the world. But, but it was world-renowned. People would have known about the temple of Jerusalem. It was restored, renovated, and expanded by Herod the Great, beginning in about 20 BC. That project literally went on for 80 years, long after he died. So it was a, a massive, massive project. The complex covers about 40 acres. Um, gigantic marble stones, white marble stones, were quarried and brought in and meticulously cut to fit together to create the, the base, the foundation, the walls around it, and then all of the buildings. But he didn't stop there. Herod also covered the temple and many of the buildings around there with gold, precious metals, and uh, priceless gems. So it, it, was just, it was a spectacular sight. Jewish historian Josephus noted that the gold plates that covered much of the temple flashed in the sun as a snow-clad mountain. I mean, that's pretty awe-inspiring for first century, right? Roman historian Tacitus called the temple immensely opulent. That's what these guys are looking at. And remember what their plan is as they're making their way through this week during Passover... And I, it's interesting, Bob uh, Deffenbaugh, pastor and uh, scholar, says this. If the disciples believed that Jesus was about to establish his throne in Jerusalem, which is a, a, a great possibility, 
would he not make the temple his headquarters? And did this not mean that their offices would be in the temple? You see what's happening here? They're looking around going, man, we got a sweet setup. If that was their thinking, it's no wonder they were impressed what great facilities these would be. Now, with that thought in mind, remember what just happened before they're leaving the temple. Do you guys remember the end of uh, verses 1 through 4, chapter 21? Remember Jesus, he was teaching and he stopped his guys. He said, hey, look over there. There was a widow and she was giving two little coins worth next to nothing. And he said, guys, I want you to pay attention to her. Here's why. What she just gave, and remember we pro- they probably heard the jingling of those two little pathetic coins going into the coffers. And he said, she gave more than everybody else. And of course, they've got to be wondering, well, how could that be? Because I've seen a lot of people bringing a whole load of cash to put in there. How could her gift be bigger? And here's what Jesus said. The rich all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So Jesus is totally flipping this worldly perspective of money and stuff, possessions, all that kind of thing. He's saying, guys, pay attention here. See what that woman did. And we're noticing her gift, not because of its size, but because of the heart behind it. Now, it's right after that teachable moment. They're walking out of the temple and it says, They're captivated, awe-inspired, speechless as they're looking at the grandeur of the Temple Mount. So what happened? They very quickly got off track. They're thinking about bricks and mortar when Jesus wanted them to to be thinking about the mission, about their calling, about why all of this was happening to begin with. They're awestruck by the enormity and the extravagance of a building, and they are oblivious to what's unfolding right before their eyes. So Jesus is going to step in here, and he's going to help them see beyond the world's wonders to the wonder of God's redemptive plan that they get to be a part of. So we're told they're in awe. They're talking about the temple, and here's how Jesus responds in verse 6. As for these things that you see, so all these buildings, this temple mount, all the gold, all the jewels, all that stuff that's got your attention right now, disciples, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That had to be a little startling. What a downer. You know, I mean, they're, they're pretty excited about how this week is going and the idea that they might get to inhabit this place. This might be their headquarters. And Jesus says, it's just going to be a pile of rocks at some point. He actually gave these men a great gift. 
He gave them the gift of seeing futility up close and personal, even while it's a long ways off. He knows that they'll be less captivated by something that won't last and then more inclined to live for something that will have no end. So that's the gift that he's giving them, although it probably doesn't feel like that in the moment. It's interesting, the apostle Peter, so he, he hears that teaching, that confrontation, that prophecy, as we'll talk about in a minute, Almost 40 years later, right before the temple is destroyed, by the way, listen to what Peter writes in his second letter, 2 Peter 3. He writes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, here's the question, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening, being ready for the coming of the day of God? Peter got it. This is 40 years later, but he understood what Jesus was trying to communicate. Um, not just about an event in the future, but about temporary things in general. Jesus wanted his disciples to be wise witnesses. And so the first principle that we get from here, as Jesus is pushing into all of their hopes and dreams, here it is, wise witnesses do not order their lives around temporary things. And we've got to know what's temporary and what isn't, right? And even those temporary things that are awe-inspiring, those can't capture our hearts or we won't be a wise witness. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't give any thought to temporary things. Uh, There's plenty of things that are gifts of God that we're even intended to enjoy. But what we're talking about is priorities, the place that things have in our lives. Our affections for temporary things needs to be governed by our heart and our devotion to eternal things. Things like God's word, God's people, and God's mission. Those are the things that need to order our lives. Nothing is more important about a Christian in this life than their calling or their assignment as an ambassador for Christ. Literally, that is the most, if you're a Christ follower, if you've entrusted your life to Christ, that is the most important thing about you is that you're an ambassador for Christ. You represent him. You're a gospel courier. And here's what I have learned. Excessive attention devoted to the gain or loss of those things celebrated most by the world undermines our faithfulness as ambassadors for Christ to the world. So as we are in love with stuff that's going to end up as a pile of rocks, it stands in the way of offering eternal life to the people around us. Wise witnesses do not order their lives 
around temporary things. Now, let me say a quick word about the prophecy that Jesus uh, makes here about the temple. He made that in 33 AD, okay, right before he goes to the cross. Um, it's helpful and hard for us because we're reading our Bibles, but when the disciples heard that, recognize that's future for them. So they don't know if it's going to happen or not or when it's going to happen or what it's going to look like. Or, like that's all future. You know what it's like? It's just like you and I thinking about the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back. Do you, know, do you get what I'm saying here? When, the, when they hear the temple's going to be destroyed, they're going, wow, gosh, I wonder what that's going to be like. Sounds kind of scary. I mean, if, if this thing is going to be destroyed, that's going to take some massive, massive uh, violence. So that, I, I just want you to feel what the disciples are feeling as they're hearing that prophecy. Now, from our perspective... Just 40 years later, the temple is destroyed. 70 AD, Roman army comes in, levels it, takes it out exactly like Jesus said. So we actually look at that event, not from their perspective as a future. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I'm going to assume if Jesus says it, it will. But we know that it happened. And that gives us great confidence in the faithfulness of God, that he is true to his word, that he actually knows what's going to happen in the future, even if we don't. And then whatever he tells us about what's going to happen, that's what we need to know. And no more. We know enough to be faithful with the assignment that God has given us. Our challenge 2,000 years later isn't so much about the specific prophecy of the temple's destruction because we know that it happened. It's a historical reality. So we don't go, gosh, I'm not sure about that. Like It happened. It's history. What, what we struggle with, what commentators struggle with, what I struggled with as I studied this passage is how Jesus responds to his disciples in their questions. See, they hear that and they're a little bit undone. They, they really can't conceive of how this could happen. So they ask in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, I can imagine I would have asked the same thing. And if you think about it again, when we start talking about prophecy, we talk about the end times, how many people are really getting into what's, what's all that mean for me? And how many people are just like, I wonder when that's going to happen? As if knowing when that's going to happen is going to change something. Like, does knowing when the end times are going to happen, does that, is that at all relevant to how you live today? If it were next week, are you going to live differently today than if it happens a hundred years from now. Here's the deal. If the answer is different, then you don't really get what God wants for your life now. Because it's not contingent upon whether the end times are next week or a hundred years from now. It's just the fact that it's coming 
And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, guys, this is coming. And let it affect how you live today and every day until you either go home to be with the Lord or it breaks into your reality while you're alive. That's what Jesus is going after. The disciples want to know about timing. Jesus wants them to know how to be ready. And so he begins to lay that out. And here's the principle. Wise witnesses are not deterred by the disruption of a world at war with God. See, they just keep on living out their faith, regardless of what the world is doing and regardless of what is happening to them. Let's look at his answer in verse 8. Jesus said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Notice he never answers their question. He doesn't tell them when. He says, here's how I want you to live until it happens, whenever it happens. Now, it gets interesting here. I've got some questions for you as you hear that text. What period of time does it sound like Jesus is describing in all of history? Does it sound at all familiar? Or let's just say in the last century? Is he specifically talking only about before, during, and after 70 AD, which again the disciples knew nothing about? 2,000 years have passed. Does what Jesus described here resemble any other part of history, any part of those 2,000 years? Could Jesus have been describing a future we haven't yet experienced? Or could he be doing all of the above? And most importantly, does it even matter? See, we get tied up in details about how all this is going to go down, and none of us can know. The the whole point here isn't to give us details about how everything is going to happen, although I recognize there are other places in the Old Testament and in the New that give us pictures and ideas. But if you read commentators about all that prophecy, there's some disagreement. There's some speculation. There's some uncertainty except around the fact that it's going to happen. And that's supposed to change our lives. That's supposed to change how we live. Jesus gives two simple imperatives here in terms of how to be ready for this. Don't be led astray by false teachers. Man, that's a good application. And secondly, don't be terrified by the turmoil. Now, just a quick thought here. How can we know if a teacher is false? If you know this book, 
you'll recognize falsehood when it hits you. If you don't know this book, then you're in danger. You're susceptible, you're vulnerable to deception. But you've been given the the filter, the framework from which to discern whether something is truth or error. And then don't be terrified. I, I don't know that Jesus is just saying you should never be afraid. You should never feel the feeling of fear. It just means that it should never keep you from being and doing all that God intends. You can be afraid and still be very faithful as long as fear doesn't have a stronghold. He tells them what to expect. False messiahs, wars, earthquakes, famines, plagues, terrors, great signs from heaven. And all of these to me seem like impersonal threats. So it's just, if you were to imagine that you're near a battlefield and bombs are going off and bullets are flying and you might get hit. That, like that, you might be collateral damage, but it's not like somebody's shooting at you. Nobody's sending a, a mortar in your direction on purpose. That, that's what these are like. These are just, there's a war going on around you and you're in the middle of it. Be aware of that. Don't be led away by false leaders. And don't be afraid so much that it paralyzes you in terms of God's calling. What they needed to know in these moments was the end is imminent but not immediate. They just needed to know it's coming. Timing doesn't matter. Just be ready. And if it comes in your lifetime, you're ready. And if it doesn't, you are ready. (laughs) And you're with the Lord. Now, after describing these impersonal threats, Jesus includes some personal ones. And here's what I think he assumes about wise witnesses as it relates to personal threats or personal attacks. Wise witnesses who are ready are prepared for the cost of aligning themselves with Christ. They have, as others have said, they've counted the cost. They just know what it might be like for them if they stand with Christ. Look in verse 12. Before all this, they, Jesus doesn't define who that is, but he says, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. Genuine Christ followers will be the objects of the world's hostility toward God. I don't know if anybody told you that when you were entrusting your life to Christ. I don't know if that feels like some kind of bait and switch to you. Like I thought Jesus was giving me the easy life, the comfortable life, the convenient life. No, that's not what he offered. He offered Abundant life and eternal life. But he also said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 
Like if you're going to stand with me, then you're going to experience the hatred of a world at war with God. 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you and I haven't really come to terms with that, when it comes, it will melt your heart away. It'll shut you down. But if you, like, you just jot down Stephen in Acts 6, go, go read that this week. When it comes, you'll be ready. You'll be like, I, I knew this was a possibility. And I'm just going to be as faithful as I can be in the moment. Honestly, Jesus is saying here, rather than seeing this as a spiritual setback, you should see it as an opportunity. And this isn't just pie in the sky. This isn't just stupid, sweet Christian thinking. This is Jesus saying, if you want to be ready for a world at war with God, you've got to see persecution as an opportunity, not a threat. Verse 13, this, this persecution he just described will be your opportunity to bear witness. You'll get to be an ambassador for Christ. You will get to be a courier of the gospel, of the good news. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Gosh, this is heartbreaking. But this is what Jesus says. Some of you, they will put to death. Christians are put to death all around the world. Probably every day. That's reality. We're sort of insulated from that in many ways. But that's reality for following Christ in many parts of the world. And Jesus said, that's exactly what's going to happen. You will be delivered up. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the good news, not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, obviously, he can't be saying you're not going to die. All of the apostles, except for John, lost their lives. They were crucified and beaten and who knows what else. He's saying they can't take real life from you. They can take your breath, but that's just for a moment. And in the next moment... You're going to breathe in the presence of God. Wise witnesses trust God's enablement for their assignments as ambassadors for Christ. I don't know what God's going to call you and me to do. But I just know he'll be as faithful as he can possibly be in that moment so that you and I can be and do whatever we're supposed to. He calls these divine appointments. God promises to speak through us as we trust in him. We don't have to memorize some script 
We just get to simply say what God means to us, what he's done for us. How good, how faithful. We just sang it (laughs) about that. You get to say that in these moments. And then you get to receive your inheritance. I want to close with this amazing word of encouragement again from Peter who denied Christ because he wasn't ready. And it's okay. Like the Lord comes back to Peter, he says, I get it. (laughs) You weren't ready. But I think you're ready now. And certainly he was. Listen to what he writes in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't that good news? Isn't that better than some pile of rocks? We have a future and a hope and great purpose for every day that God gives us on this earth until he takes us home or returns. I pray that encourages you as you start out a new year. Maybe this is a fresh start for you. Maybe today is a day when you say, you know what? I'm just going to be ready (laughs) for whatever it is that God wants to do in me and through me. I want you to take a moment and uh, just think about what it is to be ready, what it is to be a wise witness, and which one of these principles might apply to you today. All right, take a moment and prayerfully ask God to point that out for you in your heart.
Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to you and we're grateful that you can hear us, grateful that you respond to us. Uh, we pray by faith, trusting that uh, you are on the throne. We speak directly to that throne of grace that the Bible calls it because of your shed blood to us. So we come before you today thinking about this next year, but also thinking about eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that we individually and as a church and even believers worldwide would, would really uh, begin in new and fresh ways to, uh, to live well here with an eye on the horizon, the eternal horizon ahead that uh, we can get up and resolve to be ready today and get up again and resolve to be ready again for the next day. And as we put those days and months and years together, what's motivating us is the truth of what we heard this morning, that you're coming back or we're going to go and be with you, that eternal horizon where we'll meet you face to face and it will happen just as you said the temple would be destroyed. It's not, it's not if, it's, it's when. And we, we walk in and we live in that when. When it happens, we resolve to be ready. Help us to do that well. We're grateful for that perspective, which really changes how we see everything. And the here and now and, and the thereafter we love you and grateful for the instruction from your word thank you that you your word speaks to us just as if you speak to us it is the same we ask that in the precious name of christ and i say amen amen